ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When Jennifer Wallace's son was about 12 years old, she became momentarily obsessed with trying to figure out his passion. You know, it seemed like everyone in his class sort of had these specialties already, even just in sixth and seventh grade. There was the chess whiz, there was the soccer star. There was even a boy who was really into astronomy and his mother sent him to some camp to study that. And I was wondering what latent talents am I neglecting in my own three children? Her eldest son, William, was interested in architecture. Architecture and design. Could that be the thing? Could he be a future architect? And so I remember Googling up architecture and design classes and starting at the top, both figuratively and literally. The first place I called was the Cooper Hewitt Museum, which is affiliated with the Smithsonian in New York City. Mm. And I asked them if they had any classes for sixth graders. Um, They chuckled, said no. But Jennifer wasn't about to give up. And I just kept dialing up different, different programs. Finally, one did bite. It was really a class aimed at later high school and college students. And I was so excited. So when William walked in the door that day, I said, honey, I have some great news. I found you an architecture and design course. And he looked at me straight in the eyes and he said, mom, I love architecture. Please don't ruin it for me. How did you, what did you make of his response to that? I I mean, well, yes, when he finally blurted that out to me, I thought, yeah, I've gone too far. (laughs) I have crossed the line between interest and trying to program him. This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. And look, Jennifer isn't the first parent to get bent out of shape about their kid's future. But while she might have seen the error of her ways, she says the pressure many parents feel to make sure they're setting their kids up for future success is crushing. Never has the future felt so uncertain. You know, we we don't know what something like half of the jobs are going to be. And we are sensing, you know, fewer and fewer opportunities. And so preparing our kids has never felt so fraught. But that, she says, can lead to a toxic culture of achievement, one that can have and is having a profound impact on the mental health of many students. She's a journalist, and she's written a book on the topic called Never Enough. When achievement culture becomes toxic and what we can do about it. Um, There was one school that I visited for the book. A psychologist who was working there talked about that she had been a psychologist at hospitals. And she says, this school is as clinical a setting as I have ever come across. And this isn't solely an American thing. Just think of how obsessed people get about ATAR scores, which are now rolling in for 2023. And there's no point in sacrificing the mental health of your year 11 and 12 students on the altar of the ATAR. That's unwise. Today, the rise of toxic achievement culture and how to buffer against it. So... To be clear, I am not anti-achievement. I love achieving. (laughs) I get joy from it. My husband's a high achiever. Where achievement becomes toxic, though, is when our sense of self becomes so entangled up with our achievements that we only feel good about ourselves when we're achieving. And when we fail or when we're not measuring up, we feel horrible about ourselves. You know, when I was growing up, I wanted to achieve But it didn't define my life the way so many young people today, particularly Mm. those that I interviewed for the book, 
They talked about how they only felt as good as their grades, that their sense of worth was very much tied into whatever achievements, and and the failures really cut them to the core. Jennifer interviewed hundreds of families as part of her book, and I just want to give you some vignettes of what toxic achievement culture can look like on an individual basis, because it is full on. So there was one student who remembered bursting into tears in third grade when you're about eight or nine years old because she got a C on a math test and she thought she'd ruined her chances of getting into Harvard and living a good life. She thought she'd ruined everything at about eight years old. There was also the father who kept track of every student in his teenage daughter's class, so things like their estimated rankings, their parents' college, their notable extracurricular activities, and how philanthropic the family of each student was, all so he wouldn't waste energy on a college where his kid would be competing with others from donor families. There was another boy that I met who had straight A's all through high school except for two B pluses. Mm. And he talked about how those two B pluses haunted him. Wow. Haunted him because he was so stressed out that he might have ruined his chances for a successful life. And that is the kind of torment that these young people were reporting to me. He said that when a friend of his would get an award or would be honored for doing well in something, he wouldn't be happy for him. He would be saying inside, I should have worked harder. That should be me up on that stage. So when we talk about toxic achievement culture, what we're talking about is every aspect of young people's lives maximized for performance. Mm. So whether that's, you know, being a great tennis player was no longer enough. You needed to win tournaments. Every win set the stage for even higher, more competitive track. Even things that used to be stress reducers, like being part of a dance company or playing tennis, these were now competitive sports. So it's every aspect of young people's lives seem to be measured. They are living under what I call a tyranny of metrics. Mm. Um, you know, one school that I profile in New York, um, an elementary school, and the principal sent home a letter to parents explaining why they were canceling the student performance. And that was because they needed more time in the schedule to help their five and six-year-olds with career readiness. That was in the letter I have quoted in the book. That is just mind-blowing. How do we get to this point where we think five-year-olds can't have, you know, a school performance because it'll take away from career readiness? Like, how have we ended up at this place? Yes. So when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable here in the U.S. You know, housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. There was slack in the system. Mm. So a parent like mine could be relatively assured that even with some setbacks, even with a few bad grades, that most likely their children would be able to replicate their own childhoods when they become adults, if not do even better economically than their own parents did. That's always been the American dream. Mm. But modern parents today here in the U.S. in particular are facing a new economic reality. We are seeing the first generation, the millennials, 
who are not doing as well as their parents did at their age. We are feeling the crush of the middle class. We are seeing the steep inequity that's been ushered in over the last few decades. We are feeling the hyper-competition that is coming from globalization. And parents and educators are responding to this. Parents are betting big Mm. that early childhood success, getting our kids into a quote-unquote good college, we hope even unconsciously will act as a kind of life vest in a sea of economic uncertainty. We can't control for what the jobs will be when they're older. Mm -hmm. You know, climate change is mixing up everything. Now AI is on the scene. So what we hope to do is at least strap on this life vest of a good college to keep our kids afloat no matter what comes their way. But unfortunately, what I saw in my reporting and what the research is finding is that that life vest is acting like too much of a leaded vest and drowning many of the kids that we are trying to protect. And Jennifer says this kind of pressure is creating unique problems for what is comparatively a pretty privileged group of students. In 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post about two national policy reports, one by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and two by the National Academies of Sciences. These are two really important reports that our government uses to create policy. And they were looking at the most at-risk groups of children. They were naming children living in poverty, children who grew up in foster care, children who had incarcerated parents, children of recent immigrants. And then they added a newly named at-risk group, kids attending what researchers call high-achieving schools, Those are public and private schools around the country where the kids go off to competitive four-year colleges. I'm going to pause here for a moment because you might be thinking, why should we care or be worried about this group of upper-middle-class students whose parents have access to resources who are privileged? Well, as Jennifer writes in her book, the fact is they are children who haven't chosen their position and they're suffering. And kids suffering anywhere, in any circumstance, is a problem. Okay, back to Jennifer. Those kids were now officially two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety and depression and two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. Wow. So these kids who are really given from the outside is every opportunity were actually doing worse than their middle-class peers And that was because of what the researchers called an excessive pressure to achieve. Does that surprise a lot of people when you share that? Very much so. Eyes widen. It is really counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to think that parents save, they work hard to be able to afford the homes and to be able to pay the taxes in communities that offer, you know, the quote unquote best schools. And now these quote-unquote best schools are creating an at-risk group of children. That is really counterintuitive. And for many parents, it's really surprising. That amount of distress with elevated levels of depression and substance use disorder can have lifelong impacts. There was one school that I visited for the book who uh, a psychologist who was working there 
talked about how the school that she was now finding herself in was very much a clinical setting, that she had been a psychologist at hospitals. Wow. And she says, this is this school is as clinical a setting as I have ever come across. Um, That's shocking. It is. And, you know, when they, when the researchers are looking at the fact that these kids are now two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder than the average American teen, this isn't just in high school. One sociologist had this great phrase, what gets in early gets in deep. So the mindsets, the behaviors, the coping skills that these young people are adopting, mm-hmm. it stays with them. I mean, college campuses around the U.S. are in a bad state. The mental health issues on these college campuses, the colleges cannot keep up. Mm. When the researchers study this population, they see that this anxiety, depression, and substance abuse lasts in the late teen years, into the 20s, and into the early 30s. So this is not one of these things where parents might say, well, I just have to get my kid into a good college and then it will, you know, reverse itself. It doesn't. And I guess in terms of, um, you talked about the economic reasons that are sort of underpinning this drive towards relentless achievement. And a lot of what you talk about has similarities with how things have happened here in Australia in terms of, you know, millennials doing worse than parents and, and, and those kind of trends. Do you think this level of toxic achievement culture, though, that you write about in the book is a uniquely American thing? I do not think it is a uniquely American thing. Um, The research that I quote in the book is from Canada, is from Asia, is from the UK, and Europe is seeing increases of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse disorder. So no, I don't think it's an American problem. I think with globalization, there are countries everywhere feeling this hyper-competition. I think that there are a segment of the clientele that I see who do place excessive emphasis on success and performance. This is Michael Cargreg, a child and adolescent psychologist from Melbourne. He's also the author of How to Survive Year 12, and he's been speaking in schools for the past 20 years about healthier approaches to achievement. And the young people that I see, some, feel a pressure to constantly excel. But that is also fueled by other things. There are some schools, there's some media whipping up, I think, of the whole you are your ATAR Mm. kind of mentality. ATAR stands for Australian Tertiary Admission Rank, and it's a number between 0.00 and 99.95 that tells you a student's ranking relative to others in their age group. And Michael says the pressure for high ATARs can also come from schools concerned with their brand reputation. Uh, You can have some state schools who have a reputation for getting extremely high ATARs, and uh, that's great for the people who are in their zone because their property prices go up. But it's, it's not exclusively your private schools, although there are some that do put a lot of pressure to constantly excel because their brand is very much tied up in having marvellous academic uh, results. With students in those environments who are really feeling the pressure, Michael might see anxiety disorders, mood disorders. Deliberate self-harm. Sometimes eating disorders. Occasionally suicidal ideation. It really runs the, the gamut. 
But in general, he says, the Australian approach to achievement is much more chilled out than the US. Partly that's because the university system is different here. Partly it's a cultural thing. In Australia, we've got a pretty relaxed attitude to a lot of things. And a lot of the parents that I talk to are very happy for their sons and daughters not to have a tertiary education. And there's a lot of appeal to, for example, get a trade, become a plumber or an electrician, because they can see that you can make a pretty decent living. So the overall desire is that your child has some skills and that they can acquire the skills for future economic independence through whatever they do. So I think we're a little bit more relaxed in Australia about that. Yeah, I've also been wondering about like the fact that we have a social safety net and access to healthcare here means we can just chill out a little bit more, whereas the States, you know, it's it's almost like it's a zero-sum game. Either you're a winner or you're a loser. I think that's a major factor. We have uh, not the worry about, oh, my goodness, where am I going to get my health insurance from? Because we've got a Medicare system, which is uh, not perfect, but it beats what they've got in the States <laughs> with respect. And when you're seeing students as a psychologist who do think that their, you know, their worth is tied up in their ATAR, where has that message for them typically come from? Is it family? Is it school? Is it internal? Can you sort of parse that out? Yeah, I think primarily it's parental Mm. um, and then it's fed by the parental choice of school, which has a similar message, and then that's amplified by the peers who've all bought into this kind of ethos. And then it's fanned, if you like, by the media obsession with league tables and Mm. uh, the ATAR. So I think that's the way it works out. There are some parents, of course, who are what I call trophy parents, where their children are a source of narcissistic supply for them. Mm. And that's always problematic. When you're dealing with a student whose parents seem to be like that, is there much you can do to help that student without actually helping the parent? It's difficult. Um, Usually I try and find one parent that's less wedded to that paradigm Mm. and I work on them and simultaneously support the young person. But uh, it it is much more difficult. Most parents, though, are probably more well-meaning. They just want the best for their kids, but they get lost along the way on how best to achieve that. Here is journalist Jennifer Wallace again. I surveyed 6,500 parents around the U.S. because I wanted to find out what they were feeling about, you know, raising their kids today and the achievement culture that I was finding myself in. You know, as one mother put it to me, I just want to enjoy my kids and their childhood and enjoy being a mother. And yet all of my time feels like it is spent setting them up for some future success. And I think parents, what I call now the silent majority of parents, are not thinking that the way we are raising our kids today is better than the way we were raised. Mm. So many of the parents that I spoke with wanted to find an off-ramp, another way but they were worried about stepping back. They were worried about holding their kids back. So what is the answer then? Because surely the message isn't, don't work hard, don't strive, don't achieve at all. Where do we find the balance? You know, what I found in the research, I went in search of the healthy strivers. 
I wanted to know who was doing well in these communities. You know, did they have anything in common? And I found about 14 or so things that these healthy strivers, as I call them in the book, had in common. And it boiled down to this idea of mattering. These students who were doing well, despite the pressure to achieve, felt like they mattered for who they were deep inside, away from their achievements and successes. Uh, Mattering is not an idea that I came up with. It's been an idea that's been studied by researchers since the 1980s. And what researchers have found is that after the drive for food and shelter, it is the instinct to matter that drives human behavior for better or for worse. So when we feel like we matter, as these healthy strivers did, they wanted to show up to the classroom and at home in positive ways. They wanted Mm. to contribute to the family and to the wider society. And Jennifer says in order for kids to feel like they matter, they need to have solid relationships. As parents, we are told the ultimate goal of parenting is to raise independent, self-reliant adults. And while independence certainly is a valuable trait, right, we want our kids to be able to do things on their own, what I found among the healthy strivers was that their parents focused on something even deeper, more profound, and that is the skills of interdependence, how to rely on other people and how to have others rely on them in healthy ways. And the way to teach those skills is to model them. Mm. I mean, when my daughter, for example, I'll tell you a quick story. My daughter prides herself on being a good writer. She is a good writer. And in seventh grade, a teacher handed her back a paper that had a lot of red marks on them. And she was very discouraged. And so I brought her over to my computer where I was working on an article, my first article for the Washington Post science section. And a very seasoned editor had given me back my draft And it was a bloodbath. There were red (laughs) marks everywhere. And I said to her, look, I said, at first I got this back and I was a little embarrassed. I'm a professional writer. Why did I need this much help? And then I looked at it in another way. I said, this seasoned editor believed in me so much that she wanted to invest in me. And so that's how I look at, at feedback now. It's an investment. I am worthy of that investment. Um, so that's just one example of teaching our kids how to accept, you know, feedback from others, this interdependence to make us our best selves. There's another way you can convey to your kids that they matter beyond their grades and achievement, and that's in the way you speak to them. I will tell you, I asked Sonia Luther, who recently passed away, but she was one of the world's leading researchers on resilience. And I said to her, and she had conducted a lot of this research around these high-achieving students, and I said, okay, tonight, what can I do in my house? I have three teenagers. What can I do? I now know they are at risk. What can I do? And she said a phrase to me, which has really stuck with me. And that phrase was, minimize criticism prioritize affection. So what does that mean? That means our kids at school, on social media, in the larger world are getting messages about the importance of achievement, the stressors around achievement. Home needs to be a haven from the toxic messages of our society, which say, you know, only certain people matter. Mm. Only the people with the big jobs and the 
fancy cars. At home, we need to be a place for our kids to recover from those messages. And the way to do that is to really minimize criticism. It doesn't mean not have standards for our kids. Our kids need to know we are invested in their well-being, that we want what's best for them. But we have to be careful about how we express specifically when they disappoint us, Mm -hmm. when they are not acting to the best of their abilities. And that is to separate the deed from the doer. Mm. So you might not like the behavior, but you still love and cherish the person. That behavior doesn't define them and it doesn't make you love them any less. And then when when the researcher talks about prioritizing affection at home, what does that look like? It looks like greeting your child once a day the way the family dog greets you, you know, (laughs) just with total joy, just happy to see them. We, as parents, we are so busy with our to-do list that often our kids don't get to see just the joy that we have for being their parent. So make it a point at least once a day to greet your kids with just total joy. And what I will tell you is what I found among the healthy strivers was that it was because they felt valued no matter what, that it gave them the energy and the courage to reach for high goals because they knew failure would not be an indictment of their worth. If we want kids to be really successful in healthy ways, we need to convince them of their worth outside of the system. But here is the key. All of this is much easier to achieve if parents themselves feel connected and well. The thing that I found most surprising, and this is according to decades worth of resilience research, the number one intervention is to make sure the primary caregivers, that their well-being, their mental health, and their support system is intact because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on the resilience of the adults in their life. And adult resilience rests fundamentally on the depth and support of their relationships. Mm. So our multi-billion dollar wellness industry would love us to believe, download this meditation app, light this expensive candle, and you will be resilient. That's not how resilience works. Resilience works in relationships. And when I was traveling around the country meeting parents, it wasn't that parents didn't have friends. It was that too often in these high achieving communities, parents didn't have the didn't have the bandwidth or the time to invest in their relationships so that they could be sources of support when they needed them. Mm. So in our in my book, I get into what what do these relationships look like? And I'll just tell you quickly. Yeah. It doesn't mean going out five or six nights a week for mom's night out or whatever. (laughs) Noted. According to researchers who have conducted studies out of the Mayo Clinic of busy physician mothers and nurse practitioners, it requires one hour a week of deliberate time, time where we can open up, where we can be vulnerable, where we can be seen and heard, just like we try to do with our kids. It's not put on your oxygen mask on first, these relationships go deeper than that. Mm. It's having one or two or three people in our lives who know us intimately and know when we are gasping for air and who will reach over and put that oxygen mask on for us. It sounds like 
this toxic achievement culture is is partly a product of like the hyper individualism of our of Western culture in a way. Absolutely. And the solutions lie in connection and community and valuing each other, you know, for who we are rather than what we achieve. Is is there a tension there between that, you know, in terms of how our culture is and where the solutions lie and how that's so far outside of our culture in many ways? I think before COVID, there might have been more tension and people might have pushed back. I think COVID exposed what we already knew, how much we needed each other. And I think people are very open to it. And I I really do believe we are headed on a different pathway back towards connection. What kind of response have you had to the book? It's been extraordinary. I, you know, in the the first three weeks, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. And then we ran out of copies. Yeah. <laughs> it sold out. So we had to wait. So I think we're on the eighth or ninth printing right now. Wow. Um, and I've spoken at, I don't know, something like 150 events. And I will tell you, I have yet to meet a parent who says to me, this achievement culture, it's really working for me. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Our family is happy. My kids are thriving. This is amazing. Right. So um, no one has pushed back. And you started by telling me about your son and how when he was in middle school, you you know became slightly obsessed with finding his passion for a moment there at the risk of ruining his passion. What are you like as a parent now? Do you still struggle with the achievement trap and the achievement culture at all? I really don't. I will tell you that in four years of researching this and meeting with hundreds of families, I have really taken the lessons of the parents of the healthy strivers. And, you know, what I say to my kids now is I want you to be ambitious, but I want you to be ambitious for more than just a narrow band of what our society calls success, good grades, doing well on a sport. Those are just one facet. There are Mm. so many other things I want you to be ambitious about. I want you to be an ambitious friend who has deep, nourishing friendships. I want to have a close relationship with you. I want you to have hobbies that bring you joy. I want, you know, so there are so many things. And I myself in my own life, I am now ambitious for more. I mean, I was always a high achiever, but I've become very practical about how I spend my days and how I spend my time. And I make sure that my calendar reflects my values and the values that I want my kids to see of of mine. That is Jennifer Wallace, journalist and author of Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. You also heard from Dr. Michael Carr Gregg, a child and adolescent psychologist based in Melbourne and author of How to Survive Year 12. Thanks to producers Fiona Pepper and Rose Kerr and sound engineer Roy Huberman. That's it for All in the Mind, both this week and this year. This is our final episode of the year. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard this year. If you feel like it, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sana Kadar, and I will catch you in 2024. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.